Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. I'm sure you saw the statements by President Emmanuel Macron about Taiwan that was published last week and have sparked a debate and criticism about the EU relations with China and United States. These interviews were published in the newspaper L'Eco and on Politico, and they quote Macron as saying that Europe do not have an interest in getting involved in the issue of Taiwan, and warning that Europe should not become a follower on the topic and adapt to the American pace or to a Chinese overreaction. These comments are part of President Macron's European calls for European Union strategic autonomy, with a French perspective, however, and they spark a controversy as he advocated for the EU not to become a follower then of particularly the United States in relation to China and the world order. For some, his remarks could crack European unity and transatlantic solidarity, but others defend this kind of approach. And to go into detail on this, I have the right person for this job, our returning champion Wojciech Przblicki, Wojciech is the president of Respublika Foundation and the editor-in-chief of Visegrad Insight. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked with my colleague on the pod, Leszek, about the four scenarios for the future of Central Eastern Europe and the European Union with the report War and the Future of Europe. And he has been thinking and writing about how to define EU strategic autonomy. So I asked him to join me on the podcast. He was very kind in doing so. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of April. I'm here with Wojtek Przybliski. Wojtek, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm very proud of myself. I finally got your name right after like four years or something. So, Nearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked Wojtek to come to the podcast on a, an emergency basis. And thank you so much for doing that. It's always good to have you back because we're going to react about the interview given by President Macron to Politico and about um, the autonomy of the European Union regarding other powers. So I already made the introduction on this uh, topic in particular, so I'll throw it to you immediately. And that as someone that is based in Warsaw and with a special focus on the Visegrad region, tell us your top-line reaction to this controversy. My reaction was not so different from many other reactions on, on Twitter. And it was, frankly speaking, an outrage. President Macron uh, making a move on China, not because of what he said, because his words were fairly conventional, something not just expected as a French position, but also something that we have all agreed in the EU to make European Union um, autonomous uh, in, in different regards. There is a lack of clarity as to the definition, and I can speak about it later on. But in principle, uh, he didn't say something that deviated from a European position. However, he, he paid a visit to China clearly uh, downplaying how he will be played. And he was played. Mm -hmm. uh, so President Macron mm -hmm. came there um, being welcomed uh, with a pump, let's say. Uh, at the same time, the president of the European Commission, who was visiting as well, 
uh, was downplayed as a as a mm. figure who represented common European position. So in an in a very simple way, China, just like Russia, uh, or other powers against which we are building strategic autonomy, has have just shown that there is no EU strategic autonomy because there are national interests that will always be dominating over the um, the European project, or at least until uh, national leaders will actually put their all bets and cards on the common European position, which would be represented by our uh, either president of the European Commission or uh, president of the Council or uh, external action service um, uh, leader. So, um, so this is one context for this trip, which uh, which shook me. I mean, that's um, that basically has shown that these are uh, uh, Mr. Macron was not uh, either honest or he was so easily deceived, and that would be even more worried by by Chinese. And the second thing that happened is, as he was giving the interview to Politico on the plane and other media, I think uh, other media, Les Echoes in France, published a full uh, interview, um, which again, wasn't so different, but it got uh, less intense. Politico got the the main messages out of this uh, discussion. When they were having this conversation on the plane, China was just launching uh, another simulation of an attack on Taiwan. So again, Mm -hmm. a visit of European who was saying the very words that he was saying were in the context of geopolitical game that Europe has no stakes in as a actor, uh, but at the same time it does as, as, as nations. So you had, as a French nation, for instance, so President Macron was um, paying a lip service essentially to this special relation with China, which I don't think he really has, but China makes him believe he does, and Mm -hmm. uh, damaging relations between Europe or undermining relations between Europe and the US. And at the same time, uh, French frigate was just going through the Taiwan Strait, kind of at the same time, you know, showing that that uh, whatever he meant or whatever he said uh, was not even in line with the actions of the government and army uh, of France. So this this ambition we have seen through the interview, through the visit, to me reminded me of kind of this idealistic policy or with autocrats and efforts to maintain sort of status quo uh, while the the order is 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 uh, falling apart in the international order is, is seemingly falling apart, hopefully not irreversibly, but definitely such visits are not helping. And, and hence my comparison and comments to, to the mindset of Chamberlain. We're just going to hit that before a little reaction to what you said, because indeed President Macron thinks that he has special relationships with this kind of uh, political agents. Uh, we just have to remind what happened with Putin, where he was trying to negotiate things in Putin, with Putin on that long table 
and Vladimir was basically just blowing him off. But let's stay here a little more because you do uh, mention on a tweet of yours, and I'm going to put the link on the show notes, that, and I quote, the quality of European leaders who visit China lately compares only to Chamberlain. So this has to do with the Taiwan uh, situation, I imagine. But can you expand a little more on this, this fear of yours? If I make the historical analogy, of course, it's it it it, it it's a it's a hyperbole. So naturally, we're not talking of some immediate Anschluss, uh, and uh, um, mm-hmm. and yet there is a similarity in this effort to negotiate and talk sense and give a leap of faith to guys who even by, not even by their action, but by their words and the principles that they utter publicly, uh, do not respect you or do not, do not uh, agree with the position that, you, that you, you mean to defend and you mean to uh, uphold. And that's, a, that's the weak spot of, of the type of leadership um, that I was hinting at. There is this probably an honest effort to defend business as usual, from Mr. Scholz and from Mr. Macron taking these recent visits uh, to Beijing to also appease, to, you know, allow for for continuation of its economic relations with China. But at the very same time, China is mobilizing its army at unprecedented level of, of participation in, in military not just drills, but, but recruitment. Uh, they are preparing, carrying out subsequent drills that go exactly against uh, not only general principles, but European core interests when it comes to Taiwan. Ta- Taiwan is uh, one, an exporter of um, microchips that are essential for the car industry in Europe that provides our competitive edge globally. Uh, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about the German and French car industry. Uh, it's also uh, a country, if uh, being attacked by China, will require full attention of U.S. Um, mm-hmm. And there will be questions whether U.S. will be able to support Ukraine to the same extent, even though uh, Secretary Blinken says it's one theater of operations for for U.S. both Ukraine and defending also independence of China of Taiwan. These are core interests of Europe in the given context, and we 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 don't hear in these visits anything about that. And the European leaders are paying this lip service to um, to Mr. Xi Jinping, um, who you know among other things is continuously repressing uh, minorities, who you know I mean behaving like a regular autocrat, and in the European context, is not delivering anything in terms of uh, peace in Europe and pressure on Russia. To the contrary, we only hear reports of uh, China providing military support, financial means, and uh, great relations with Mr. Putin, but not anything that would contribute to uh, Russian scaling down at least the levels of yep. attack on civilian infrastructure, acts of terror, um, and the most recent barbaric acts of its military. Yeah, those are fantastic points. And it also relates to 
the South China Sea, the East China Sea, all that area, if, if there is that kind of military mobilization, and also because China will control the, the seas around it, and that also relates to world trade and so on. But let's focus now on Europe. On one way, of course, you already described what is the main uh, issue regarding the uh, statements of President Macron, but strengthening the continent's strategic autonomy. This is something that it is beneficial for Europe and the European Union, and actually this is called by the European Parliament. And you yourself, talking with my colleague Leszek, uh, when you described the four scenarios for the EU, and we're going to be talking about that in a minute, you said that strategic autonomy is also welcome in the Central and Eastern Europe. So how can we balance these two factors then? I am at first uh, proposing that we define strategic autonomy. It, it's a concept that existed in the EU key documents for about 10 years. It has uh, mm -hmm. emerged in a discussion some 10 years ago actually around the question of capabilities of Europe in order to deliver security, among others, uh, in, in the context of the war in Ukraine, but not only, not alone. And it's written down and agreed upon by European leaders in the common security and defense policy. It's one of the elements, it's, it's, it's a wording that has been put in there and has grown and developed since. And when Mr. Trump came into uh, into the White House, Mr. Macron thought it suited his political narrative best to refer to the strategic autonomy concept. And I think there was a, there was an example of a perfect storm between Central Europeans and France and those others who who still didn't recognize the the subtle differences that that underpinned uh, this perfect storm when it comes to strategic autonomy. Central European countries are perfectly okay with building up capabilities of European countries, EU countries in particular, to, to, de to deliver security in the framework of transatlantic alliance. When we, de when we discuss strategic autonomy of Europe as being independent of malign foreign dependencies, of, of cutting off the, the dependency on gas, on energy from Russia. When we talk about dependencies on trade and you know, strategic corruptions that comes with it from China, from Russia, from some of the autocratic countries in, in the Middle East, these are principles that no one protests in Central Europe as long as we're operating in a framework of security that is under the umbrella of NATO. And you have all the countries in Eastern Europe uh, as members of NATO and members of the EU commit, they're, they're mm -hmm. committed in, uh, in, in, in this um, uh, uh, to both, I wouldn't say in equal terms, but in an interdependent uh, manner. In which, in which NATO and the transatlantic link provides most of the hard security and U.S. is looked upon as the, someone who, who delivers the, the hard security on the ground and leadership in that, uh, in that alliance. And, 
and the participation in EU, Eurozone, is considered as a soft security add-on, without which NATO also would not be able to operate so efficiently. You need factories, you need uh, democratic performance, you need um, all the elements that NATO is currently discussing as underpinning, again, uh, the, the world order it is meant to defend and to protect against uh, malign and often hybrid uh, influences from abroad that involve, uh, yes, these economies, dependencies, energy, and so on and so forth. So these two elements are intertwined, and they are perfectly make sense for Europe to have a stronger um, options on the table for delivering within this security framework, but not of you know decoupling from U.S. Um, and I think this is uh, this is the main beef uh, between uh, nurturing certain sentiments in France or resentments about uh, the ideas of Charles de Gaulle that Mr. Macron is apparently hinting at and understandably so this resonate well in mm-hmm. in the um, in elite circles and and wider circles perhaps in in France because um, they build on the conviction that France could uh, deliver security and be the the leader of Europe these are an old, that's an old ambition of of France in the European context but this is this is their national game this is this is their perspective in um, in what we hope to agree, and I think we can also enumerate a number of examples how European autonomy has been building. We can enumerate a couple of examples in which strategic autonomy has been built over the past uh, years. Most of these efforts are not driven by nationalist or national agenda, maybe not nationalist per se, but uh, this, this feeling of, you know, grounders of a particular political project, except for uh, for the for the common European project, and that involves common response to to aggression um, efforts to mm-hmm. or to deliver uh, effective measures during COVID to all member states, regardless of their size. Um, you know, even negotiations with Brexit uh, during Brexit with with Great Britain that has shown how much Europe can deliver, how much it is an economic power. A, a lot of these um, are uh, encouraging signals of, of European power, of European, uh, if not military might, but so far the economic might. And whether Europe will become, and this is really um, a groundbreaking moment in, in the European history that we are now having common European de- defense investment within PESCO, within uh, European peace facility. We we have common trainings for soldiers, uh, including Ukrainian soldiers. In, in you know uh, sanctions by the, sanctioned by the EU institutions. These are all elements that build long term uh, strategic autonomy objective of Europe being able to deliver in security in its own immediate vicinity within, again, a framework and in cooperation with the United States, because, you know, the, the last time we tried to do something in as Europeans and under NATO umbrella in, in North Africa and Libya, uh, Europe or European countries um, clearly did not have enough uh, munition supplies and were in need of asking U.S. to deliver 
ammunition for their fighter jets to perform uh, the the objectives uh, that were that were set and agreed upon. So there, there is an acute problem, there is a need, and there is there is a road uh, to to answer that. But mm-hmm. we shouldn't be cheated by by kind of you know the the, the reality on the ground in which. U.S. is indispensable for the time being uh, for uh, keeping Europe safe and secure. And that is echoed by the uh, Polish prime minister and also some of the foreign policy advisors for President uh, Duda, that they believe that we need more American Europe. So with this difference, as you were explaining, culturally, historically from France, and then this block in Central Eastern Europe saying, no, 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 we we still want that umbrella. And after the amazing work that you guys did with uh, the uh, report on the future of Europe, war and the future of Europe, I'm not going to ask you to uh, guess the future, <laughs> because you don't have that capability, I hope. Mm. But uh, how do you see then this, this differences of opinion melting in some kind of common European project? I think the the whole trip and the way uh, Polish leadership uh, acted was, again, very symptomatic for the right-wing government in Poland. And it was um, not very wise and probably also counterproductive. In in the U.S., in the U.S., uh, U.S. establishment does not want to hear that we want more U.S. in Europe, that that seeds of 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 this uh, message fall on a fertile ground of American isolationism that is building on the on the both sides of on the Republican and Democratic side, and we only can show uh, and demonstrate to the U.S. Uh, electorate, uh, to the constituencies of of both parties, that Europe is matching. Uh, to the extent possible, the war effort of of U.S. and that U.S. by involving in in Ukraine is not being involved in even a a, a proportion of what it what it has been spending and how much sacrifice it, it has uh, given to the to the war effort in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, so the message of Europe to the U.S. Uh, especially through the mouth of uh, Mr. Duda or Mr. Morawiecki, should have been that we are grateful and we need the U.S. for the time being while Europe is uh, building up its capability to lift uh, some weight um, off the shoulders of U.S. in the European context. But of course, these are nationalist leaders in Poland and uh, their current direction is on against the European unity. They're, uh, they're, uh, we are in the, European, in the national parliamentary race. Uh, the, the general uh, elections are uh, set for autumn. And one of the key messages is uh, uh, hitting Germany hard. Uh, part of this narrative is built on the past mistakes of Germany, which we should clearly remember and remind in the German context, but are missing the point uh, because Germany at the same time is constantly delivering more and more. Perhaps they are not 
at the European leadership and maybe even missed the window of opportunity to demonstrate that they can be leaders of, uh, in terms also of security, but, but also clearly you hear it from Ukrainians themselves that Germany is delivering uh, gradually more and more in terms not just economy, but also uh, military uh, equipment that Ukrainians need so badly, and that overall Poland needs so badly. If we talk to US, uh, telling them that we still need a lot, a lot, a lot of involvement in the US, that's gonna backfire. It is going to backfire both uh, from the point of view of the Polish um, national uh, interest, which is of course to keep US involved in Europe, because we need every partner we can have to fend off uh, the Russian um, aggression on on its neighbors. But at the same time, uh, it this is uh, probably incentivizing these voices that say, oh, come on, we cannot be involved in Europe forever. And these are not new voices. They, th- there is an ambition within yep. subsequent um, administrations for um, carrying out the pivot towards uh, Southeast Asia, where uh, the key economic interests and security interests for U.S. really lie. And it would be high time for Poland and Germany to come together with friends, probably this is why the Weimar Triangle is so important, to be able to deliver more security in through the EU institutions and together also with the U.K., that's well, is so much involved, and the Nordic countries that are stepping in to be able to maintain peace on the European continent and uh, project that peace effort on uh, on its uh, vicinity and neighborhoods, uh, stabilizing the situation and allowing uh, our transatlantic key partner to actually focus where it is uh, so important and 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 not just because it's another region of the world, because as Blinken said, it is one theater and we should be very aware, uh, very aware of, of, of the dangers uh, should there be some conflict uh, in the Southeast Asia. Very good. I'm going to add one more variable to this conversation. I'm, I'm quite worried the vision that we have of the United States of being a stable actor uh, or being a participant in the world order in a way that it's predictable. I don't know if you can assume that anymore, Wojtek. So in a way, I do understand this need of the uh, strategic autonomy because, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples very quickly. Since uh, the Republicans have the House of Representatives, the debt ceiling situation is not solved. We are careening into a world economy crash that... It'll make the the previous um, crisis like a, a child's play. Um, there are key players in the Republican Party, in the House of Representatives, and in the Senate saying that we should stop helping Ukraine. There is a candidate that clearly is leading the polls to be the GOP uh, candidate for president that says that he will take America out of NATO, and that is Donald Trump, of course, and is as we owe it is his 40,000 votes away from being again president. And there's this declared desire by a larger and larger part of the Republican Party of moving into this illiberal democracy crap like our friends from Hungary. 
So I'm I'm afraid that, and and I'll throw it up to you to see if you feel the same thing. I'm afraid that the United States will stop being a coherent um, country regarding political uh, action, not only internally, and we see that more and more, but also to the rest of the world. And it is a good idea not to be depending too much on them as they becoming more and more erratic. What's your reaction to that? Uh, it seems like a psychological relief uh, dictating uh, uh, foreign policy, and I, I am strongly against that. Uh, because we need to observe the facts uh, as they have presented themselves during even these difficult years in, in during the Trump presidency. In terms of U.S. involvement in Europe during the Trump presidency, no matter how ridiculous uh, and erratic uh, the, this leadership has, has been, uh, U.S. in terms of security has only increased its presence and delivered what it promised to the eastern flank countries within NATO framework. So yes, I I, I read you and I and I and I see that in a longer term prospect it might be uh, challenging, but um, policy actions in these key areas are. Um, were not dictated by uh, by this um, well erratic behavior to the extent that we feared. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried overall. For instance, on the other hand, also from the eastern flank perspective, we need to remember mm-hmm. that uh, Mr. Trump has been downplaying uh, NATO in the context of Estonia. Uh, he's been basically playing with words which. Uh, would be uh, considered and could be considered as an undermining the, the alliance and the, the nature of the alliance itself. And that this was very worrying for uh, the same, the logic on which U.S. would step in to, to take action. This is indeed, the, that mm-hmm. is about some fundamental principles and these are worrying signs. Um, another erratic point, and mm-hmm. I think I, I will not, ex- you know, um, I will not go too far to by by quoting an event from 20 years ago. It, the Iraqi war um, under different leadership was also uh, something that split um, uh, U.S. and the EU. Uh, we know that it was to a large extent a mistake. Um, Afghanistan not, but Iraq was was a mistake of how the mission has been carried out and what objectives uh, were actually not even met. And that was a situation in which uh, many European countries, uh, the so-called New Europe countries, were also involved and participated, and, and that undermined part of, the, part of the trust. But that's, uh, you know, that erratic behavior is also happening in, in the European context. Uh, we just, just ask yourselves mm-hmm. how many countries in Europe have been actually fulfilling the promise and the pledge they all agreed to within the common alliance of NATO alliance to to meet 2% GDP objective on on you know on upgrading their uh, forces there there are equal parts and shares of of you know beef between uh, between uh, <laughs> the the countries uh, across the atlantic but within the, the same alliance within the same family of nations that 
overall are committed to to general ambition of securing democracy and freedom around the world. That's and especially in our own countries. Uh, that's uh, that's understandable diversity. I would not again try to overplay the divergence between U.S. and Europe uh, mm-hmm. by saying that it's that's why we need to build strategic autonomy. We just meet, need to build strategic autonomy because otherwise we will be losing also against U.S. Um, mm-hmm. if you know if we do not put emphasis on building up our industry uh, of uh, you know um, coming back with with production back to Europe of securing our investment internationally in critical resources in 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 also making sure that we are uh, uh, innovative and advanced in terms of uh, energy and 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 uh, productivity all these questions i think are not unique to europe uh, and in that sense every every part of the world is thinking what are their uh, strategic autonomy but at the same time it, it, it cannot be uh, an autonomy which is uh, isolationist. Uh, Europe will not survive being isolationist, simply speaking. But even U.S. would have trouble surviving in the global economy context as an isolationist power. So these are very dangerous fantasies. Mm-hmm. And we need to, again, what I said at the very beginning, be very clear about the definitions. I'm actually arguing, and I think under the Spanish presidency in the EU, there will be also another attempt of framing strategic autonomy in a in a different way, not as you know isolating from, especially not from allies, but as a, a building capacity internally, building up the the potential and not only economy, but of uh, let's say 360 degrees of our institutions, of our societies, our demography, our healthcare, uh, to be. Um, really as independent or interdependent, uh, but not just in, you know, in one direction that is looking inward. It, it is about having our ability to act, after all, in, in the world and, and to, to bring influence and, uh, and change, uh, be a force for good. Very good. My time with you is running out, and I thank you so much for spending this uh, this minute with me. I know that you're bi- very busy. We just have like one minute, and then I'll let you go. But I do need to uh, reinforce to our listeners to go and check on visegradinsight.eu, War and the Future of Europe. This is a fantastic work done by you and your team, and actually you talk with Leszek on the other episode. All of this will be on the podcast show notes. And my parting words to you would be, uh, this, is, this is an idea for me to you, and that is to do a report on the four scenarios of the EU-US none or interdependence, where you can have like four scenarios, all the US, a little US, none the US, and the US as a hostile uh, actor. So here's, here's a little idea for you. Thank you. I, I will uh, actually take it very seriously. We are currently with a four-year uh, framework project with the European Commission actually to deliver voices uh, from Central Europe on the future policies and the future strategies of the, of the EU. 
Um, and and exactly this consideration is is so much timely. So so thanks for hinting the direction, uh, Ricardo. No, it's 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 my pleasure to have you on the podcast. Please keep doing the amazing work you guys do. It's always a privilege to have you here and your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elf for this month of April, on the 27th of April, from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., and this is Eastern European time, we have the Working Group Rule of Law Crisis, Liberal Solutions 2. This is going to be in Budapest, is an organization of ELF Secretariat. And this series of ELF's working group on rule of law focus on Polish and Hungarian perspectives on threats to democracy in these countries, and by doing so, further expand the conditionality mechanism's implications in the context of other member states. Two sessions will be held in Warsaw. It's already happened on the 14th of April, and this one in Budapest to discuss a liberal compact to overcome the rule of law crisis. The working groups aim to identify solutions and outline the next steps for restoring and preserving Europe's democratic future. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>